Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. The nation of the Orange Free State stands ready for war in such circumstances where peace cannot be secured with honor. And although we recognize our shortcomings, our nation depends on the power of God to deliver us and secure us a victory. With a deep understanding of what we can expect when we place our trust in the Almighty, our nation will enter the war with courage and will fight until the bitter end to preserve the independence of our beloved fatherland. A speech of defiance against the British Empire given in 1899 by Martinus Steyn, the last president of the independent Orange Free State. Shortly afterwards, Afrikaners were embroiled in the Second South African War. But how and why did it come about? How did the Boers achieve initial success? And why did the British set up concentration camps? I'm Rob Weinberg, and to answer the big questions about this complex conflict, I'm joined by Dr. Stephen Badzi, Professor of Conflict Studies at the University of Wolverhampton. This is How and Why History. Stephen, thank you very much for joining me. How did the South African Anglo-Boer War come about? The South African Boer War began in October 1899 with Queen Victoria on the throne, and when it ended in May 1902, her son Edward VII had become king. And this was an era of widespread imperial expansion. If you include the informal empire of the United States over Southern America in the Monroe Doctrine, there were almost no countries in the world that weren't part of somebody's empire. And for countries faced with this in the second half of the 19th century, there's no way modern sensibilities will ever agree with this. It was straightforward British imperial expansion. You've got a country, we're going to take it. Now, this, in modern terms, automatically gives us some kind of sympathy for the other side, except that it's hard to sympathise with them as well. 
the target of this British imperial expansion were two republics already surrounded by British territory or British claimed territory in southern Africa, the Orange Free State and the South African Republic or ZAR, which is normally called the Transvaal. They claimed themselves as democracies within the context of the time, and nobody would have objected to that. But it was a rule by the descendants of white settlers. They'd been in Africa for generations, originally of Dutch origin, we call the Boers. And effectively, they just didn't want to avoid being absorbed into the British Empire. They wanted to be left alone to run their part of Africa as they saw fit, and that included the way that they controlled and exploited the indigenous African population. In 1899, to the east of the Transvaal was Portuguese East Africa, modern Mozambique. To the west of the British colonies was German Southwest Africa, modern Namibia. And the British were really concerned that possibly these republics, over time, might form an alliance with the German Empire, and perhaps be absorbed into that, blocking British expansion and the great ambition at the time of British imperialists, what was called the all-red route from the Cape to Cairo, the domination of Africa from north to south by the British Empire. And this was further complicated by the fact of discovery of great mineral wealth, diamonds just outside the Orange Free State, followed by the gold strike in the Transvaal in the 1880s. Who were the Boers? The word Boer just means farmer in Dutch. They were essentially farmers and settlers, descendants of people of Dutch origin, sometimes German, sometimes Portuguese, going back to the 1600s. And their view of the outside world was comparable to that of similar communities in the American Midwest, perhaps the Australian outback. They had rejected the 19th century modern world. They wanted to live quietly on their own homesteads, living their own lives. They were deeply religious with a form of Dutch Calvinists. They believed they were God's chosen people and that God had given them this land that they now held. Because the Boer War was so traumatic for South Africa, there are still problems in simply picking the words. These are still contested histories. It is easier to describe the Boers by the word they used for themselves, the Afrikaans or Afrikaner. And the indigenous black peoples who they came into contact with, often fighting against, sometimes allied with, are referred to by historians for convention as Africans. The Boer republics had all the institutions of European states. They had capitals, they had parliaments. Some of their elected officials or appointed officials have been educated in Britain or elsewhere in Europe. From the British point of view, this was a modern state comparable to a European state. And again, the analogy with the United States of the 1880s or 1890s is opposite. You've got the capital of your state and beyond that is effectively the Wild West. But out in the great flat plain known as the Velt, which characterised both the Orange Free State and the Transvaal. There are homesteads with cattle raising, game hunting, and the status of Africans in these homesteads was not officially slavery, but for practical purposes they were working in a subsistence economy and they had no rights at all. This was very hard for the British or indeed anybody else outside this particular culture 
to understand or to come to terms with. One of the things that the Boers took for their military system, which was rudimentary from the Portuguese, was the name, Commando, which is just Portuguese for command. And the reason the name sounds familiar is that Winston Churchill fought on the British side in the Boer War, and when he became Prime Minister in the crisis of World War II in 1940, he wanted a good name for highly mobile raiding troops, and he picked Commando to carry just that association. This is also known as the Second Boer War. What and when was the first? Afrikaners call them the First and Second Wars of Independence, which perhaps gives their perspective on it. The First Boer War, otherwise known as the Transvaal War, came about over the Southern Hemisphere summer of 1880 to 1881. The Boer republics were recognised by the British from the 1850s onwards, but with the usual complicated small print in the treaties and conventions. The British Empire had some say in how they were governed, in particular external relations, attitudes of foreign policy. And that didn't trouble anybody in 1880, because in the Transvaal, the gold discoveries hadn't taken place. They wouldn't take place for another six years. The relationship was difficult in particular between the Transvaal Republic and the neighbouring Zulu kingdom to its southeast, effectively. They clashed quite often, and the Transvaalers were aware that one of the things that British presence in southern Africa was doing was offering them, when necessary, some kind of protection from the Zulu. The British were also just about to expand into Zululand. In 1877, the Transvaal government was rudimentary and not really very much of a factor as far as any of the Boers who lived out their farms were concerned. The Transvaal government was effectively defunct. and The British authority in South Africa, the Commissioner for Southern Africa, annexed the Transvaal, left the Orange Free State alone. This was just the Transvaal in 1877. And nothing very much happened until the British also invaded and annexed Zululand in the Zulu War of 1879. And some Boers, either as individuals or as small groups, fought in that war against the Zulu. And that meant that the British had removed the main threat to the Transvaal and the main area for which they looked for protection. So shortly after the Zulu War of 1879, which again took place in the Southern Hemisphere summer, the Transvaal rose in revolt in December 1880. Transvaal commandos laid siege to the very small British garrisons dotted in various parts of the Transvaal. British military forces around the empire were always inadequate if there was a revolt or a major trouble. It took time to move forces out from Britain. It took time to raise auxiliary forces. Essentially, an inadequate small British force advanced up into the southern Transvaal or attempted to advance up into the southern Transvaal to relieve these sieges. And it was catastrophically defeated at the Battle of Majuba, which is February 1881. Now, there were British reinforcements on the high seas coming to continue the war, but Gladstone's government made the decision that there was really nothing worth fighting for and agreed to a peace treaty and then a convention to return to the Transvaal effectively its independence with various qualifying clauses. And that made a deep impression on the Boers of the Transvaal, that that pattern 
of laying siege to British garrisons, the British attempt to relieve the siege, they defeat the British attack, the British give in and make peace. I'd worked for them once, and in 1899 they tried to fight their last war over again. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. How successful were they initially, and what did it take for the British to fight back? The war was preceded by a period of negotiations which took place in the Orange Free State capital of Bloemfontein between President Paul Kruger of the Transvaal and Milner, ostensibly about the rights of the outlanders, and these were deliberately a farce. These were going nowhere. It was just another way of trying to portray the Transvaal as intractable. Paul Kruger eventually just snapped, what you really want is my country, and walked out. He was absolutely right. At this point, from about August-September onwards, 1899, British forces already existed, garrisons in Cape Colony and the British colony of Natal. The main force of the British army was about to set out on the high seas, to land in Cape Colony for a war that everybody expected. The Boers decided to preempt this in October 1899 by declaring war on the British before the British were ready. And President Steyn of the Orange Free State agreed that this time the Orange Free State would go to war alongside the Transvaal. Whether he actually expected to win is very hard to say. Famously, he declared, if I say war, it will be war to the bitter end. He knew that there was simply no compatibility between the philosophy of the Boer republics and the British Empire that was coming to get them. But the Boers tried to fight their last war. They could bring out the commandos for a few days initially, perhaps a month or two. Their first encounters with the British, they showed something that any British who had any awareness of them and familiarity with them knew about, but the British hadn't fought against them since 1881, and it came as a big shock that the Boers were more mobile than the British. They were horse-mounted, all of them. 
They were very good at keeping their horses alive and well and fit in what was sometimes semi-desert conditions, and they all carried rifles. In fact, because of the Jameson raid, the Transvaal had decided to rearm with the latest military technology, the German-made Mauser rifle, which was every bit as good as the British Lee Metford rifle. They both, in the clear air of the South African veldt, had ranges of well over a mile, and they fired cordite or the equivalent, which means there was no smoke to give away your position. So the British were advancing against an enemy they couldn't see, sometimes dug in in entrenchments, sometimes just spread out under cover, and the Boers were picking them off in the same way that they would hunt big game. The British were simply being exposed to a level of firepower and technology they hadn't experienced, and they didn't really know how to respond. That doesn't mean that for the first few months there was just a string of Boer victories. It went to and fro. There are some British victories, but largely the Boers were facing the British because the British weren't ready for the war yet, with a situation they couldn't cope with. Once it got past perhaps the opening month, the commandos were faced with the problem of simply how were they going to be fed, how were they going to be able to move. In some cases, they took their families with them, which was traditional. In some cases, large columns of ox-pulled wagons, which really slowed them down from being horse-mobile. The war broke down very quickly into three big sieges. The Boers repeating their tactics of besieging somewhere, the British will come to relieve it. In the north, northwest of the Transvaal, close to British territory, there was the town of Mafeking, famously defended by Colonel Robert Baden-Powell, as he pronounced it, but the world knows him as Baden-Powell. And it was the boys used for routine duties in the siege of Mafeking, which led Baden-Powell, after he left the army, to form the Boy Scout movement. And the siege of Mafeking lasted for the longest. It was finally relieved late in 1900, and there were immense celebrations in Britain when this happened. It was called Mafeking Night. People used the excuse for a really big street party. But the siege of Mafeking just runs through the opening months of the war. The other two big sieges are the siege of Kimberley, where Rhodes is trapped inside Kimberley and plays a certain part in the defence. And the main British attempt of relief would be from Natal up through the high mountains, the Drakensberg Mountains, into the southern Transvaal Orange Free State. And this resolves itself into the siege of Ladysmith, which is just within Natal, just south of the Transvaal border at that date. So those three big sieges, Kimberley, Mafeking, about which the British can't do very much, and Ladysmith, by the time the main British forces are arriving in South Africa, becomes the main issue of the war. And the result of this is that three widely separated British armies attempt, one to relieve the siege of Kimberley, one to relieve the siege of Ladysmith, and the third one is advancing more or less in the centre of the country, up from Cape Colony, into the southern Orange Free State. Now, this is a massive area. The distance from Cape Colony to Pretoria is the distance from Berlin to Rome. And the British hit disaster in what is called Black Week, when in the space of a week, all three of those armies suffer a major defeat. First of all, the Central Army at Stormberg on the 10th of December 1899, then the Western Army under Lord Methuen in the Battle of Magusfontein, just short of Kimberley, on the 11th of December the following day, and then four days later, 15th of December, at the Battle of Colenso, the force trying to relieve Ladysmith. 
suffers a catastrophic defeat, and in each case the pattern is the same. The British don't know what the terrain is, they don't have enough mounted troops to conduct proper reconnaissance, they don't know where the enemy is, they are advancing over pretty much an open plain into a hail of bullets, and they are suffering heavy casualties, often without even being able to see the enemy properly. And the shock of Black Week in London and the rest of Britain is absolutely massive. Nothing on this scale had ever happened to the British Empire before, that if this were not redressed, that would be the end of the British Empire. Winston Churchill wrote home that if they didn't win this war, he wasn't coming home, because the British Empire was over. And it's one of the tragedies of the Boer War that the Boers, in trying to refight their last war, in inflicting a defeat on the British and expecting the British to say, it's not worth it, we'll make peace, humiliated the British Empire. And from that moment on, there was no way, whatever it took, that the British were going to lose this war. What did it take for the British to fight back? Initially, they needed a quick victory, which they got. The arriving British commander, Lord Roberts, with his deputy, Lord Kitchener, who took over from Roberts in the later part of the war, needed to win a quick victory, which he did by massively increasing his number of mounted troops to give him mobility and the ability to reconnoitre and find out where the enemy was, and simply driving up mainly the railway lines, first of all to relieve the siege of Kimberley, and then on to capture the Orange Free State capital of Bloemfontein, and then on to capture the Transvaal capital of Pretoria. All of this was achieved over the summer, heading into the Southern Hemisphere winter. Pretoria fell in June 1900. So from initial British defeats up to December 1899, six months later, the British have occupied both capitals and annexed both countries. And as far as the British are concerned, that is the end of the war. If that had happened to a European country or one with European practices, the war is over. And in fact, Lord Roberts announced that and went home. The British government held an election on the strength of this. It's known as the Khaki election and were returned to power. The Boer leaders got together and decided that they were not going to accept. It's a critical decision that they were going to fight on to the bitter end. And that means a radical change of tactics. They were going to go into guerrilla or sometimes known as insurgency tactics. The commandos reshaped themselves into small bands of a few hundred men, entirely horse mobile, moving around the vastness of the Welt, dependent for resupply just on their own homesteads. They would call in on their farms with their women and children they'd left behind, and these would be their supply chain in order to keep a guerrilla war going. For what purpose, they weren't entirely certain, but they hoped, first of all, for outside help. They had an utterly unrealistic view of this. They seriously thought that the Netherlands, or possibly even Germany, would come in on their side in a war against the British Empire. This was simply never going to happen. And otherwise, simply, this was inconceivable to them. Their republics, their way of life, they were not going to give them up. So you see, it's not instantaneous, a gradual change into what's often called the third phase of the war, from the first British losses to the British victories in what's a very conventional campaign in some ways, we understandable in terms of European warfare, 
into a long-lasting guerrilla warfare. And from what we know of wars since then, what is surprising about this is not that it took so long and it contained so many atrocities and terrible events on both sides, but that it actually didn't last longer and contain more, because that has been the pattern for wars it's set ever since. You mentioned atrocities. This was a war where concentration camps played a role. How did that come about? The word concentration camp was deliberately adopted by Nazi Germany in the 1930s as a cover for camps for political prisoners and other people regarded from their point of view as social undesirables. They picked the name deliberately because of the awful reputation of the British concentration camps in the Boer War. Up to that point, the term concentration camp was just a camp where you concentrated. It had no particular connotations until this war. The decision to go into guerrilla warfare of the Boer commandos meant they left farms throughout the Transvaal and the Orange Free State, where there were women, children, largely unarmed, although they'd be perfectly prepared to shoot if they had to, black servants, farm workers, relatively undefended, first of all. The origin of the concentration camps, which starts to happen at the beginning of the guerrilla war phase, is actually to protect these people, improbable though it sounds, because they are at risk from roving African attackers and indeed from the general side of the war. But the British are in the middle of trying to fight a war for which they are not in any way set up in terms of supplies and logistics and all the things you need. This happens to everybody in wars of this period. Twice as many British soldiers died of epidemic diseases in this war as were killed in action, and the same thing was going to happen to the inhabitants of these camps. They were the lowest possible priority, they weren't well set up, and increasingly also there was a feeling that this was a way of pressurising the commandos to surrender, for individuals to come off the veldt, surrender. These are known in Afrikaans as the Hansuppers, for obvious reasons. The concentration camps became increasingly ways of putting women and children into them to make it harder for their husbands, fathers, brothers to carry on fighting. How much that was a deliberate policy, well, certainly it was a factor. And the concentration camps became scenes of shortages of practically everything. Not enough medicines, not enough water, not enough basic hygiene. You take people from a widely dispersed population and you put them together and epidemic diseases sweep through. In this case, it was diseases like measles, cholera, swept through the camps and women and children died. Just to make certain in their own way that this was almost bound to happen, the British also segregated the camps. Boer families were dependent, and the dependents in some ways were mutual, on their African servants. The British split it into camps for whites, camps for blacks. And the camps for blacks were also labour camps. If you didn't do some basic manual labour for the British towards the war effort, you didn't get fed. The same impact came to the black camps. Any quote as to how many people were involved is guesswork. Should we say certainly over a 100,000 black Africans in the African camps, more than that in the camps for the Boer families. 
at least, and nobody would give you a lower figure than this, 27,000 who are dead, at least 15,000 African dead. I think those figures are low. Now, this inevitably got back to Britain, and it got back thanks to British people. Among the people who came out, one figure who is still a hero to some South Africans was a British lady called Emily Hobhouse, who came out as, for what today we would be called, working with a non-governmental organisation, an NGO. She was experienced at dealing with problems of hygiene in slums and things like that. She came out to the concentration camps expecting to deal with something like that and was absolutely horrified. I call this camp system a wholesale cruelty, to keep these camps going is murder to the children. It can never be wiped out of the memories of the people. It presses hardest on the children. They droop in the terrible heat and with the insufficient, unsuitable food, whatever you do, whatever the authorities do, and they are, I believe, doing their best with very limited means, it is all only a miserable patch on a great ill. Thousands, physically unfit, are placed in conditions of life which they have not strength to endure. In front of them is blank ruin. If only the English people would try to exercise a little imagination, picture the whole miserable scene, entire villages rooted up and dumped in a strange, bare place. She had good contacts in the British press back home. She came back home. She told them about it. She got to tell the leader of the opposition, Campbell Bannerman. And Campbell Bannerman listened to her. He just gave a speech in the House of Commons. We are told war is war. But then we're told that there's no war happening. When is a war not a war? When it is conducted by methods of barbarism in South Africa. And that phrase and its impact stuck. What we see from the Boer War onwards is the increase in the barbarisation of warfare, which was one of the features of 20th century warfare. So what led the Boers to surrender and accept British terms? By the Southern Hemisphere winter, by February-March 1902, it really was the bitter end. The British had something like half a million troops involved in South Africa, and these included contingents from the British Empire who'd come to fight on its behalf. Contingents from the Australian colonies, from New Zealand, from Canada. The farms had been destroyed in a scorched earth policy, with all the suffering involved, but also the loss of any way of the commandos, of which there were now about 20,000, to get resupplied. They were running out of basic essentials. They were practically out of clothing. They were dependent for ammunition from their guns on fighting the British, taking whatever they could capture. Simply there was no point in going on. The British had broken up the entire war zone into a pattern of blockhouses with barbed wire fences between them, and they were using mounted troops to drive the commandos, almost like driving big game again, up against these, trying to bring about fighting encounters, gradually reducing them. Negotiations opened with the British, led by Kitchener, who by then was commanding for the British, in March at the Transvaal town of Ringingen, and over a sequence of negotiations which led to a final agreement of the peace of Ringingen, ratified the same day at Pretoria on 20th of May, to 
a treaty ending the war. And the British gave the Boers, from their point of view, the softest possible peace they could. There was a limited franchise, I've explained, which was not colour-barred in Cape Colony. One of the clauses of this peace treaty was that that would not be extended to the Transvaal and the Orange Free State, that they would eventually have the right themselves to decide who they gave the vote to, but it was going to stay as strictly white men for the time being. There was a certain amount of compensation from the British to help rebuild the countries, and there was a great deal of self-government, but the absorption into the British Empire would stay. What they had to give up was republic. One of the great Boer leaders, Christian de Vett, dedicated his memoirs in the English translation, and it's a wonderful piece of sarcasm, to my fellow members of the British Empire. And that loss of republicanism, the loss of their own land, registered very deeply with the Boers, as indeed did the destruction of the camps and the British scorched earth policy. Now, at the end of this, Kitchener shook everybody's hand in the room and said, we are all friends now. And the British meant it. They wanted this to carry on as you accept you're part of the British Empire, the rest will do our best for you, in effect. The people who got left out of the equation was the African population, who were seen increasingly as a disenfranchised source of cheap labour. This was ratified, made formal, when the British brought about the Union of South Africa, a dominion with similar status to the dominions of Canada and Australia in 1910. And with that, the gradual increase of Africana nationality. You see increasingly an Africana identity, Africana nationalism, this continues as a trend all the way up to after the Second World War. The Africana National Party takes power in South Africa. The 1951 Representation of the People Act in South Africa disenfranchises the black population completely. This is the origins of apartheid. Stephen Badsey, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. How and why history. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.